Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. I think I'm safe to make the overgeneralization that at one point in another, we've all felt undervalued at work. Maybe we believe we should be paid more, be given more responsibility, or have a more significant title. But believing us doesn't get us very far. How do we actually get what we want? Today's guest believes it starts with becoming a self-advocate. She's going to explain how to get the confidence to do just that without coming off as someone who is bragging or boasting. Stephanie Ritz is a career consultant and mindset transformation coach. She founded Claim Your Career, where she helps professional women rise faster, earn what they're worth, and claim their seat at the table with confidence. Stephanie gives a ton of great advice throughout our conversation. My favorite was creating a living resume to record and organize your skills and accomplishments throughout your career. This is just one of many goodies she shares. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the Philly sports fan, career superstar, single mom, Stephanie Ritz. Let's um, let's get started actually with college for you. You graduated with a journalism degree, and then you got into banking. <laughs> What's the story there? How did that happen? Yeah, so I went to school for uh, communications in general, part of a uh, larger product of um, the Temple University communications program is journalism, public relations, and advertising. So it was kind of a, an all-inclusive um, bucket of information. And uh, I, I graduated really thinking that I was actually going to go into public relations. And I had started um, in a direct sales company while I was in college and working for an insurance company, just, you know, money coming in however you can get it while you're in college. And I ended up getting laid off from my insurance job just months before graduation. And I thought, okay, no big deal. I wasn't going to be in insurance anyway. So let me just continue pursuing my direct sales business. I did that for a while. And then I graduated and I was like, you know, I've really been busting my butt for several years now. I think I kind of just want to spend some time at home with my son. I had a, a, a little boy by then. So I continued with a direct sales company for several years after I graduated. And that supported me and my son for several years. And then I really started to get burnt out. This is before internet. So it was all old school marketing. Um, so it was really hard back then to really drum up the sales. Like it's just not the same as today. So I got burned out, even though I had a really successful business and decided to go into corporate, basically trying to do anything um, to get into a good PR firm. It's really tough. And I just needed any job. So in 2008, we had moved to a new town and that's when the market crashed. I thought that there would be plenty of opportunities for me to try my hat at different things, maybe in the communication sector. And there was literally nothing. So I took an entry-level job at a bank, a little community bank in my neighborhood and it had just opened. So they were looking for customer service people. I joined on and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to give this a go. I have no banking experience, but this is the cards I was dealt. Let's go with it. And that turned out to be an incredible career opportunity for me. In three years, I was a VP at that bank. And then two years later, I was a senior VP and I stayed in banking for seven years. I had no idea that that was coming, but 
you know, sometimes you just have to make the most out of what you have. And that's where I ended up. Mm. That's super interesting. And honestly, looking back on it now, and also having some conversations with people that are younger than I, I realize we put way too much pressure on first job and crafting and picking this, this, you know, career path. And honestly, we don't even know what we don't know. It's, it's one of those things. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but if it checks most of the boxes in terms of an opportunity and you enjoy your coworkers, you don't mind your boss, you have a paycheck coming in, you have some benefits and it doesn't sound completely boring to you. I think it might be worth pursuing that opportunity. What do what are your thoughts on, on first job out of college? Yeah, I think, you know, after you graduate, it is try to it is nice to try to get a job in your field, but sometimes the opportunities just aren't there. So making the most out of what you do have is a really great opportunity to actually learn new skills and try things that you maybe hadn't experienced while you were in college. And you may find that you have strengths or interests that you didn't realize that you had. Um, I still have no interest in banking seven years later, but I found things within that opportunity that I loved. You know, I really enjoyed the relationship building aspect of it. I enjoyed um, being able to present to boards things that I didn't see in my wheelhouse. I thought I was going to be that behind the scenes person helping others to really elevate their careers in public relations. So, you know, I was exposed to so many different things and running departments and teams. I, I didn't know that that's something that I would want to do in the corporate world, but I took some of that from my direct sales experience um, in building a team there and really utilized that in my banking career. And it really helped skyrocket me into things that I, I didn't know. And now I have connections with people that, you know, are, are lifelong impactful mentors and friends to me. So yeah, I think when you're getting out of college, make the most out of the opportunities that you have. Try everything, you know, while you're early on in your career, you just never know what things may pop up for you that you didn't intend. Hmm. And when you were going through your seven years in banking, did you, was that intentional, the direction you were headed with, you know, client interfacing and wanting to manage people, et cetera? Were you taking inventory each year, trying to move closer to the things that you were really interested in within side of that banking career itself? Yeah, I honestly didn't even know what opportunities were there for me because this was not an industry I had intended to be in. So I started having conversations with my my manager about, well, where do I go from here? Because I took a, an entry level customer service job, you know, basically a teller. Um, you know, I want to know what what else is available to me. And she wasn't someone who really was ready to expand me and my career, we had a really great working relationship, but she had a very old school way of thinking that you have to put in years before you can kind of get to that next level, which for her was a banking officer. So I started talking to other people in the bank who had been around for years as well to see what other options there might be for me. And I found out that there were different paths that I could take into managing teams and um, bringing innovative ideas. This was really when you know online banking was becoming a big hot thing and mobile deposit and all these new technologies. So I thought, okay, if I can start bringing ideas and thoughts to the table, this might expand my opportunities. And I don't know where it's gonna lead. I honestly don't know, but I know that it will get me out of customer service. Hmm. Um, um, and I was really willing and open to trying 
anything, seeing what was out there and really capitalizing on this opportunity, being in a smaller company that was really growing rapidly. So that's what I did. Yeah. Let's put a bookmark in this thread real quick. And let's jump back to something that you mentioned earlier, and that's your son. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you had a very, I'm going to guess, untraditional college experience because you had a son after your freshman year of college, correct? Yes. So I was the first one on both sides of my family to go to college. Um, I found out that I was pregnant in my freshman year and I finished my freshman year. I was actually at Shippensburg University in the dorms pregnant. Um, and I, I finished my year there and then came home to Philly and I had my son and um, I found myself very much alone uh, in that situation. So it was just he and I, um, my parents, my mom really didn't have any kind of financial ability to support us. So um, I stayed there for six months, but I had decided immediately that this was not going to be the end of my college career. I will find a way to do this. So that's exactly what I did. I took out extra student loans. I got two part-time jobs. I found, you know, different means of childcare, <laughs> no car, nothing fancy. I took out extra student loans like anybody would for housing, but I got a really tiny one bedroom apartment for the two of us. And I graduated, I transferred to Temple University and graduated three and a half years later. So just one semester behind. Um, I took the semester off after I had him in August. I took off that fall, returned in the spring and just powered through stacking all of my classes, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday or Tuesday, Thursday, working on the alternate days. And um, so, yeah, that's when I graduated and I had the opportunity to just stay in my direct sales business that allowed me to spend time with him that I had missed over those years, but I was very determined at the time to continue my course in, in being the first graduate in my family. And I was. Good for you. You are a badass. <laughs> I <can't laughs> Thank even, you. I, I could barely take care of myself, myself in college. I can't imagine taking care of somebody else. Were you mature enough at that point in time? Or did that moment really make you mature and have you make you have to step up to the plate on that sense? Yeah, I was, um, I was like most kids, you know, very in a self-centered world before I had him. But the moment he came into my world, it was no longer about me. And every decision that I made, I decided was going to be for him. And graduating college, although it was certainly a feather in my cap, for me also felt like the door to create a life for the two of us that made sense financially. So that was really what what led me and and every decision that I made, like I said, was really thinking about him first. Um, and yeah, there was certainly um, moments throughout those years that were not um, made with the greatest of maturity and decision making as I was still, you know, growing myself, you know, I had him just after I turned 19. So I had a lot of growing up to do during that time. But my will and my vision was so strong that it really carried me through. Hmm. Was um, You mentioned the lack of support, but was there somebody that you look back on now that stepped up and really helped support you through that, that moment? Um, you know, I had a lot of emotional support, um, you know, from my, from my family um, in many respects. 
but financially, no, um, it was definitely all me. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of people that kind of came in and out of my life during those years that, you know, helped, helped me, you know, whether it was babysitting on a Saturday night so I could waitress and, and add a, a few extra bucks to my pocket or, you know, just giving me a break for a few hours um, or just allowing me to cry for, for an hour because life was so overwhelming at that moment. Um, I would have friends that would drive me home from school on days where I was just running so late to daycare that the bus just wasn't going to cut it, you know, mm. really going out of their way. So there's a lot of really small moments that were really powerful for me from a lot of different people. Mm. Yeah, you've had some remarkable years and now you have your own coaching practice exclusively for women. Um, do you work with any men? I don't know. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Um, I, and I'm curious, I, I know you've talked a little bit about how COVID has affected women differently than men. Where have you seen the difference in the last year between the two genders? Yeah, I think when um, a lot of kids had to be homeschooled, it was the mothers that decided to step back and, and take care of that role at home. Um, sometimes that meant having to leave their job or cut back on their hours or make adjustments where you didn't see that so much predominantly with men. Um, same thing with caretaking of maybe elderly parents that um, had been affected or, or quarantined or needed that additional support because of COVID. Um, typically that's the women. I think those traditional gender roles really seem to kick in over the last year and a half. Um, and it has disproportionately affected women. Um, so I'm hoping to see a resurgence now that things are kind of moving in a better direction to see more women re-entering the workforce and continuing to move up into leadership roles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you mentioned it as, um, quote, quote, the second shift that, uh, you know, females are taking on a lot of the childcare. And there was a stat out there, I think it was on a blog post that you wrote that one in four women are unemployed. And that was because of the lack of childcare, it just made more sense um, to, to take care of children in this time versus going to work which is unfortunate, um, but boots on the ground now, um, from your own experience, not statistics, do you feel like women are re-entering the workforce right now? Are you having some of those conversations with women? Um, I am having a lot of conversations with women about career transition. Um, I think that the experience that we've all had in the last year has, uh, has been a really good opportunity for reflection in what's really important in our lives and moving into a career or their own business that's really empowering for them. Um, I can't say from a global perspective statistically what those numbers look like, um, but I know that the conversations that I am having is around really wanting to make those shifts um, and reprioritizing their life now that some of them have been home with their kids for the last year or taking care of their parents. Um, I think a lot of people are ready to really focus on remote work um, so that they can live in a more fulfilled way um, or travel more. So I'm seeing a lot, a lot of that um, for both men and women. But um, as you shared, I work exclusively with women. Hmm. So let's get into some of the work you do as a coach. Um, you have the meat and potatoes of this conversation is going to be centered around this five steps to corporate success. Uh, this awesome little guide that you have. I, I found a lot of great nuggets in there. Um, and the first two steps are uh, get clear on your goals and show them your authentic self. 
I don't want to spend a ton of time there because um, not because I don't think they're important, but because there's so much in three, four, and five that I want to ask you about. But okay. before I move forward on that, is there anything that you want to add on either one or two? Yeah, I mean, getting clear on your goals is really about aligning your career with your life, um, shedding the expectations of our, our parents, our culture, our society, and really understanding what success looks like to you, and finding a career where you can be your authentic self. Um, I think burnout comes from trying to put on a show every day and doing something that doesn't feel true to you, um, and just the exhaustion of that can really affect you in so many different ways. So those are the only things I think I would mention on those two that are, I think, really important. Mm. Yeah, I like the comment there that you um, that you talked about around burnout, because I think that is very true. So number three is build relationships with decision makers. So mm -hmm. let's start off and talk about first, what do you mean by decision makers? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of people have an easy time making friends at work with coworkers and colleagues but they're not gonna be the people that move you forward in your career necessarily. So when I say decision makers, once you have an idea of where you wanna go in your career, start becoming friends with those people that can actually help move you in that direction. Um, and not even just friends, but making sure that they know who you are and what you can bring to the table. So an example of that would be, I think I've already mentioned in my early on banking career, my manager, really had the notion that you have to be in banking for years before you get a promotion to banking officer, which isn't really a substantial step up. Um, so in talking with you know the CEO, the CFO of the bank that I was in, they were like, no, if, you, if we see value in what you can bring to the table and you have the ability and skills and vision that align with what we're trying to do with the bank, it's not gonna take years for you to get there. So. I made sure I had conversations with them and built those authentic relationships with them so they knew exactly what I could bring to the table and how I was performing. And it was those relationships that got me promoted. It wasn't just my boss. Hmm. Um, my boss was not gonna allow that type of growth. And what was your boss's reaction whenever you did get promoted? Yeah, you know, I think that there's a lot of uh, office politics there, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the case in every corporate environment to some extent. Um, so she remained very cordial. Um, and we did have a really good relationship up till then, but she just didn't agree um, with, I guess, the decisions made by the people above her. So, you know, she remained at the bank and she did her thing and I did mine. And um, yeah, those can be a little bit tricky to navigate as well when you get promoted um, as, as a colleague to your boss. Um, and that's not necessarily expected by them, but you know, that's, I think all part of navigating relationships is, you know, this isn't about her. It's not really about anybody else. It was about me and what I was bringing to the table and my vision and my goals. And that aligned with the way that the bank had envisioned the direction of their company. Mm. So specifically in that situation, who was the person that you were making a relationship with that pulled you up? Yeah, the the CFO. Um, okay. She was CFO and COO. Um, so I worked, you know, directly with her on projects for the bank um, as she was a COO. But she was one who was really the catalyst for my, um, yeah, my my subsequent promotions. And how do you go about building a relationship with someone like that? As you mentioned, I think it's easy to build relationships with your peers. I don't know 
if there is something there in terms of, I don't know, you all seem at the same level, so it's just kind of natural, but how do you go about either through that experience or any other experience that you've had in your career building relationships with corporate leaders? I took every single opportunity that I could to be in front of her. Um, so whether it was at an office happy hour, if it was the company holiday party, um, a meeting that she was walking through the space where I could just stop and have a conversation with her. I tried to learn as much as I could about her to see if there was any commonalities that we can have a conversation about. Or if I had an idea for the bank, I would ask her for that one-on-one -on -one meeting. Um, so it's, you know, it's really about being bold enough to start a conversation. Um, most people are open to it. If you approach them at the right time, timing is really important. Um, and then you're really consistent about staying in front of them and showing them not just with your words, but with your work, what you bring to the table. Hmm. Okay. Let's take one more step back since you brought it up, getting in front of them for the first time might be easy at a small community bank where you're going to bump into them on a, on a pretty frequent basis. But what if you're at a larger company um, and the corporate leader that you want to get in front of is not someone that you typically bump into at meetings or even at the water cooler or whatnot? How do you start or approach that situation? Yeah, I think honestly, it's in the same in the same way, but because your time and opportunities are more limited, you really have to come with impact. So right now we're in a very much a Zoom world. Um, so when you're on a Zoom and you happen to have that audience, get there early, ask questions, have conversation, stay late, don't be the first one to jump off, smile, be engaged. And I send emails to my CEO, my COO, whenever I have a thought, idea, suggestion that I think is impactful, I just go right for it. You know, what do you have to lose? If you really feel like what you're bringing to the table is valuable, share it out, you know, with the right people, keep getting your name and your face in front of them. Um, and when you do have those, you know, really small windows of opportunity, Make sure that you come with your full energy and prepare to showcase who you are and really build an authentic relationship. So it's not just about saying, hey, did you know that I did this? Or, you know, did you know that our team, you know, moved the needle this much in the business last year? No, you know, like it's really about just making a friendship first. I think that that's really important. So every time that I've navigated these relationships, whether near or far, um, it's always started with some sort of commonality, some sort of shared interest. I would listen in on call to see what the little back and forth conversation would be between other people. How can I interject myself into those conversations? Where are their interests? It's all about managing up, understanding who your audience is, how they would prefer to be approached because some people aren't gonna read their emails. Other people are gonna feel it may be a little aggressive to just pick up the phone and call them. So, you know, see how you can get in with them in the best way that's going to serve them, not you. Hmm. That's interesting. So are you saying that you would reach out, Hey, CEO, I had this thought and idea. Um, what do you think? Or, Hey, CEO, I heard you talking about this. This is a thought or idea I had around that certain situation. Yeah, I think actually, I think either way would be fine. Um, and I've done, I've done both where if I really feel like I have a powerful topic to bring to the table, I'll just send them an email and, you know, they may or may not respond, 
but I can tell you that now they've seen my name. I can follow it up the next time that we have a conversation. Hey, Mr. Who, whatever, um, you know, I sent you an email on this. I just wanted to share my thoughts. You know, if you have time to discuss or if it's something of interest of you, I'd love to set up a 15 minute call to go over it in more depth. You know, I, I absolutely will put myself out there because most people are open to it. You're usually your own worst critic when it comes to really sharing out your thoughts and ideas. Are they really powerful? Are they impactful? You know, am I going to sound like an idiot? So really replaying those thoughts in your own head and saying, no, these are just people. These are human beings and you may have something really valid to share. So why not put it out there? But when you do, be confident that what you have is valid. Mm. Yeah, I've been working on this practice where I don't tell myself no. If I have an idea or a thought, I let someone else tell me that that idea or thought is not right versus never putting it out into the world and seeing that response back. Because it is so tough. You are right. You're your own biggest critic. And I have found many times that I'm like, I don't think this has got to be, I, don't, I think this has got to sound dumb. And then all of a sudden, I'm leading a project in some certain area because I gave my advice or two cents on something. Yeah, absolutely. I think putting yourself out there um, and self-advocating, which is of course another part of the, the process here is super important. Hmm. And what about your boss in particular? Um, we've talked a little bit about building relationships with corporate leaders, but somebody that you're gonna have a lot more face time is your direct supervisor. Your first 90 days on the job, how do you go about beginning to build a relationship with your manager? Yeah, so I think the first thing, again, is building it from an authentic place of really wanting to get to know them as a person and not just constantly keeping it about work. Um, you know, let them know that you're open to conversation about, hey, how was your weekend? Or what do you have going on this week? Or, hey, did you catch the, you know, the interview with Megan and Harry? Whatever it happens to be that you may have some sort of conversation piece on, I think is a really great way to start building that relationship and not just constantly making it about work. I think it's super important to be focused on work while you're there. But like I said, everybody's just human. Everybody wants to have conversation outside of just the day-to-day -day, nine to five grind. So, you know, in those first 90 days, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and open up a bit to share pieces of yourself and also engaging others in conversation about things, not just about work. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And um, you mentioned it earlier, but I think a great place for that is before and after meetings. It is arriving five to 10 minutes before meetings, yeah. five to 10, you know, sticking around five to 10 minutes after, be the first one there and the last one out and have conversations with someone once they walk in. And it doesn't always have to be your manager. It can be your peers. It can be anyone. And asking them genuine, interesting questions, I think is such a great piece of advice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, mm. and that can be, again, via Zoom in this new virtual world, or if you happen to have the opportunity to be in person, take that time. Those minutes before are so crucial. Hmm. So let's move to, to step four here and it's build your resume. What do you mean by build your resume? Yeah. So once you actually have your first job and you have, you know, you, you've got your foot in the door, your resume is now starting. And I usually keep a working resume on my desktop, not on my work computer, of course, uh, on my home computer. And I add to that every time.
time there's a new skill, a new thing that I learn, a new experience, a major thing that I implemented, I put it on my resume. And um, I always, as we talked about, always looking ahead to that next opportunity. What does that look like for me? Once I've identified exactly where I want to be, what skills do I need to get there? Because it's funny when you get into an interview situation, how quickly you forget about all the things that you accomplish. So having that working resume to constantly build on and add, you know, kind of momentum to, to get to that next level is super important. And the skills that you need to get to that next level, identify what those are and start building that resume as you go. So for me in banking, you know, there's a lot of things that I needed to learn about the online banking world that I wasn't exposed to as a customer service representative. So I started seeking out how I can start to learn these things. And I asked to be put on projects. I asked to be involved in the implementation of new items. And next thing you know, I was the online banking officer for the entire bank. So, you know, building your resume is about understanding the skills that you need to get to the next level, but also really notating what you're doing as you accomplish them and adding those to your resume. Your resume shouldn't just be a bullet point of, you know, degrees and, and experience as far as, you know, this was my job that I was tasked to do, but these are the, the needle movers that I made in my company. These are the things that I've accomplished. So keeping a running resume and understanding what skills you need to get to the next level is all about building your resume. So do you do that in a Google Doc or a Word document or like a note or something? I just do an old school Word doc, nothing fancy. <laughs> and you know, walk me through something that you just recently put on there. Like it's, you know, I worked on this project. Do you put the date and or specifics or details around it? Yeah. So like if I implement um, a new client that's really big for my company, you know, I'm going to write down all the things I needed to do to accomplish that and what my specific role in that was. And my role could just be, I managed a team of 15 people to implement a client that is now, you know, one third the, um, you know, revenue for this territory. I'm very specific about the numbers because numbers are really crucial in an interview process um, and what my role was and how that benefited the team. What were the skills that, you know, I, I either learned or added to my resume by doing this, if it's a new experience and if it's something that I'm charged with doing, how did that impact the bottom line for my company? So again, those are the things that you tend to forget, especially if you've been working for someone for a long time, you know, how much you have personally added value to the company and what that actually looks like in a numerical way um, can just easily fly out the window when you're actually in the interview process. So actually putting it on your resume, um, even if it's just your working doc for the process is really helpful. Hmm. How long is that document for you now? Oh, it's long. <laughs> <laughs> do you have backup somewhere too, just in case? Uh, I do. I got it on a thumb on thumb drive. Um, yes. <laughs> and and is there a cadence? Do you have a reminder like every Friday? You know, dump your thoughts in from the week, or is it whenever something big or an idea comes to your head, you go to the document? Yeah, for me now, it's just like, you know, I, it's just one of those habits. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily have it on my calendar to do that. But whenever I am starting something new, or I'm going into 
um, a, a process with a new coaching client that might be a new exposure for me. I really document all of the things that we've kind of gone through, any new skills that I learned or skills that I helped them kind of walk through their process. Um, so I just kind of do that now after all of my coaching calls and then for any new projects that I'm working on in a corporate environment, same thing. And do you have um, sections inside of this living document? Like, do you have accomplishments, skills I'm working towards? Is it broken out or is it just a kind of a journal timeline? Yeah, it's much more of a journal timeline. Um, but I can say that I, I used that to really ramp up a more streamlined resume anytime that I was shifting jobs throughout my career. Hmm. And then do you have a, your target goal now in your corporate life, the, the, position that you want to get to and the skills that you're still lacking in that certain area somewhere, or is that in the back of your head or how do you manage that process? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, right now I'm navigating towards a different, uh, different type of process. Um, so, but I would say for anybody who is navigating their corporate world, it is good to have a target and understand where you want to be personally to make sure that your skills are lining up for that job. And if they're not identifying where those gaps are so that you can start building that into your own resume. Hmm. Let's, let's talk about the other side of the coin here. And whenever someone is in the job um, search process, something that I see with young professionals, I'm assuming you're going to see this with females as well is once again, saying no, if they don't meet all the requirements that are listed on the job description itself. So if it's five years of product management and I have three and a half years of product management, I say, mm, I'm not qualified for this job. Do you see that with um, the females that you work with or coach along as well? And what do you think is the roadblock or the obstacle here? Yes. Oh gosh. Yes. And it's something that I preach to, to everyone, young, old men, women, if you, for me, I think 60% is a really great target. If you meet 60% of the criteria, apply if it's something that you're really passionate about. Um, I mean, the application process itself, um, I think is really grueling and not the best way to actually get the job that you're looking for. But as you're going through that process, yes, don't let perfectionism stop you. And I think the fear of failure is what stops people. So when they don't feel like they have all of the check boxes, um, you know, they stop and they don't apply. And it's because of that, oh, well, I'm going to fail because I don't meet all of these requirements, which of course is absolutely untrue. Um, there's so much more to accomplishing your job and being successful in your job than ticking all of those boxes. So I would say for anybody who is applying, um, go for 60% and just do it, do it anyway. You have nothing to lose by applying, number one. Number two, as somebody who's been hiring people for 15 years, I can tell you that it is one of the least important things for me that people will put all of it out there in hopes of getting that golden unicorn applicant that maybe has it all. But I have, you know, really looked outside of the box on other things outside of what is on that, you know, that job request form. And I've hired some fantastic people over the years that maybe only had 50% of it because they had other qualities that were more important. Mm. Yeah. And you don't have to have all hundred percent because honestly, if you got to, if you have all hundred percent, then what do you have to learn that you're walking into the job with? And I think a good story to illustrate this might be the young girl that you hired, um, that didn't know Excel. Can you tell that story? 
Oh yeah. So there was um, this girl who uh, applied for a marketing position and she had all of the great skills that she needed to really do well in this job. She was really personable, gave a fantastic interview, but did not know Excel. And this particular position, it really was crucially important that she knew Excel. And so we came back to her with that feedback, like, you know, this is an important piece, everything else, you nailed it. We think you'd be a great fit. This young woman decided on her own to independently go and take an, an Excel course. And I didn't care that she didn't, you know, she didn't have a master's in Excel when she came out. She had the initiative to go learn what she was missing and she mm -hmm. got the job. And she has gone on to do incredible things, is now working for a really huge marketing company. So, you know, sometimes it is saying, okay, I am missing this. I didn't know how crucial it was to the role. She applied anyway, and then she did end up getting the job. She did have to take that extra step, but she wowed us so much with all of the other assets that she had that that one small thing was not a deal breaker. Hmm. What a badass story. That is cool. Uh, and I love initiative. That is like something you don't find too often in candidates, but when you do, you know, it's something special because they're, they are telling you that they're willing to learn whatever that they need to learn in order to do the job, which is super cool. Yeah, exactly. So let's move into number five here. And that's identify your limiting beliefs and self-advocate. So what, I love this idea of being a self-advocate, but I think this has got to be a big challenge for most people. This is a tough challenge for me as well. How do you differentiate between self-advocating and boasting and bragging? Yeah. So I think a lot of people get caught up in this and it literally paralyzes them from self-advocating. You know, boasting and, and bragging is, you know, is being flashy about your accomplishments in a way that you just want people to know what you've done because it elevates your sense of self. When you're self-advocating, you're bringing value to someone else by sharing what you've done. And you're allowing people to recognize the skills that you bring to the table that can support them in their efforts or the bottom line for the company. And it's really important that you do that for so many different reasons. But if you're trying to excel in your career, you have to tell people what you're capable of. You, you just have to get comfortable with saying, this is the things that I did to help the company this year, or I was excited to be part of this team that elevated the company to, you know, bring on 10 new clients, whatever the case may be. And even in also just asking for what you're worth. I think a lot of people fall short here as well, really understanding what your salary should be versus what it is and being willing to ask for it ask for the promotion, ask for the raise. These are things that most companies don't just freely give out. I can tell you that every uh, raise that I've ever gotten is because I've asked for it, except for once. One time they came to me as opposed to me coming to them and said, okay, we're giving you, we're giving you a raise because of X, Y, and Z. But all of the other raises that I've ever received were because I asked for them. I asked for a specific dollar amount and I came prepared as to why. And that's all part of self-advocating and saying, you know, these are the things that I'm bringing to the table. This is what I know that I'm worth. And this is what I'd like to be making. Mm. 
How do you hype yourself up for that conversation? I mean, you, you got all the, do- I can imagine it. I can picture it. You got all the documents, <laughs> you, you, you know, you went to your journal, you highlighted all the things that are going to be important for this conversation. You're ready for it. You asked for time on your manager's calendar. What's the half an hour leading up to it look like? Not psyching yourself out, I think, is number one, because a lot of times we can talk ourselves out of what we have already decided that we're worth, um, whether that be for a raise or a promotion. Um, You know, I don't know. I feel like for myself, I've been so um, driven by vision. You know, I understand exactly what I'm worth that I'm like excited for this conversation. Mm -hmm. My expectations are high. Like I'm going and going, I know that I am worth $10,000 more than you're paying for me. And I'm going to ask for it. It doesn't mean I'm going to get it. Maybe I'll get something. Maybe I won't get anything. I don't know, but I'm going to at least tell them this is what I'm worth and why, and then set the expectation that this is what I'm worth. And if you're not going to give it to me, that's okay. But now I need to make the decision of whether I need to go somewhere else who is going to pay me what I'm worth. So I think this is where coaching really comes in strong, right? Because those limiting beliefs about, you know, what we're really worth, what the value is that we can bring to the table, being self-reflected back, as you said, from someone else to say, yeah, actually you are a badass. You should be making this much money. Go in there and ask for it. Like you deserve it because you do. Um, And honestly, that's a lot of what I work on with my clients. Mm -hmm. I just had a client that got a 25% increase. She had been working her way up to this for months. And, you know, she had all of the reasons why she had all the comparative notes around what other people with her title were making in the area. We did all of the research. She was prepared, but it took her so long to go in there and have the conversation. And as much as I was proud of her when she finally got it, I said to her, how would you have felt if you were able to do this three months ago? 25% salary increase is huge to be missing out on for three months because you were too nervous to ask. So I think really just understanding what your position is, why you deserve it, truly believing it. When you truly believe that you're worth it, the anxiety is not there. The excitement replaces the anxiety because you know that you're asking for what you deserve. Mm. Totally agree. Um, I reflect that in my experience as well, but I remember the first time I asked for a raise and that was really nerve wracking. And once you build a couple successes in that area, you feel more confident about it. But early on that very first time, I remember I had to just commit to it. I had to tell myself, I have to have this conversation and know what the outcome is going to be so that I can decide, as you mentioned, do I want to stick around for what I'm currently making if they're not willing to offer me what I want, or do I need to go look for, for another option? Um, and that's tough, but like I said, you just have to have some pride, um, some, some self-pride in yourself to, to follow through on that. So that's super cool. And it's, it is neat to be a fly on the wall and so many of those experiences for other people. I've never been a part of that experience. And I think that would be so fascinating. I'm telling you, I celebrated that win with her as if it was my own <laughs> because we worked so hard on, on finding that language and, and finding that self-belief um, that when she finally got it, it totally felt like a win for me. Mm-hmm. And something else I would say is, you know, when you go in and ask for a raise or a promotion, 
that the, the number isn't always the deciding factor. There could be so many other things that you can ask for if the number can't be there. So maybe if you ask for 10,000, they give you five, but then you negotiate for an extra week vacation. So find the other things that are important to you um, and then make your decision from there. Hmm. And what, what was the, how did she tee the conversation up leading, leading up to it? Did she ask for a meeting beforehand? Did she just approach her boss and, and kind of corner them? What, what was the situation? No, she asked for a meeting and she did let them know in advance what it was that she wanted to discuss. Um, and she, she came prepared with, again, all of the things that she brought to the table, comparative numbers um, for people that had her exact title um, in, in her area of the country, because it does vary by location. And, um, you know, the years of experience and what her vision for the co company is. And um, she, she made the ask and they simply said, yes, we think you're right. You deserve it. Effective immediately. Hmm. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Stephanie, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, if people want to connect more with you, uh, they can find you at your, your website, claimyourcareer.com. Your coaching packages are out there. You have some awesome blog posts that are out there. You can even schedule a free consultation call with yourself there. You're also over on Instagram at claimyourcareer. And then as um, we were chatting about a little bit before this call, uh, you're super active on Clubhouse as well. So if people uh, are, are on Clubhouse out there and want to hear some more about you, hear some more from you, then they should totally go connect with you on, on Clubhouse. Anywhere else that you'd like to direct people to? Yeah, no, I think you covered, you pretty much covered it all. Um, on Clubhouse, my handle is at coach underscore Steph, S-T-E-P-H. Um, and you can certainly email me or contact me through the website as well. Cool. Awesome. Final question for you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you and how would you teach it? Yeah, I've been really reflecting on this question <laughs> because uh, there are so many things, honestly. There was really two that really came up for me, uh, which can really be intertwined, which is emotional intelligence and how to manage people. I think in, especially in corporate environments, a lot of people get promoted and then are, um, you know, they're promoted based on the merit and what they can bring to the table with their skill set. But oftentimes how to actually manage other people who are doing the same thing is left to the, to the sidelines. So a lot of people get promoted and that's where they end up feeling those limiting beliefs. That's where all of those lack of confidence comes in because you know how to do your job, but managing others to do it is a whole different ball game. And I think a lot of companies are missing the ball on teaching um, their up and coming managers how to manage other people mm -hmm. um, and leading with emotional intelligence. Again, something that nobody talks about really, um, but that is really an important and crucial part of being a leader is really understanding how to lead and, and control your own emotions um, in environments which can be very stressful in, in many circumstances. So I think those are the things that I would really want to teach uh, people that they haven't been taught coming out of high school and college. Mm -hmm. And to pick your brain a little bit more about emotional intelligence too. So I sit down for my first day of class um, and, and Professor Stephanie passes out the syllabus. What, what could be some things on the syllabus for emotional intelligence? I have no idea where I'd start in terms of teaching that. 
Yeah, I mean, leading with vulnerability, I think is is huge. Um, understanding different personality types and how to manage those, I think is also really crucial, you know, di the different personality types, um, understanding the strengths of your team and how to capitalize on those um, and, and how to deal with toxic work situations um, with your emotions. Because I think that that's, again, where people really start to feel a lack of confidence is, or, or they tend to not want to stay in their companies is because they don't have a good relationship with their boss. So you one day may be that boss and understanding how to relate to your employees and how to manage with sympathy and empathy and heart-centered you know, leadership is is really important so those are the things that i would want to cover this has been such a blast stephanie i wish you all the best luck on your coaching career and um if corporate life is going to stick around for a little while best of luck there as well but i'm really excited to follow you along awesome thank you so much for having me this is so great and uh yeah i can't wait to stay in touch and and see your journey as well Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.